I like out here how in the agriculture community in Alberta, you hear people talk more about moisture than you hear them talk about water. I haven't really noticed that in other places I've farmed in Canada. The reason why I like using the word moisture is it feels more inclusive, more encompassing than words like rainfall, precipitation, even water to a certain extent. The word moisture sounds like it accounts for everything, so what falls from the sky, no matter the time of year, and also what's in the ground. And you know what? Maybe we need a term that is all-encompassing in a dry place like Alberta, because sometimes, in some years, every drop of moisture counts. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Real Roots of Climate Solutions, we're looking at adaptation and water management. I mean, moisture management. Professor David Sachin is the director of the Prairie Adaptation Research Collaborative, or PARC, which is a research center at the University of Regina. PARC provides regional climate data and information to support adaptation to climate change and climate variability. Professor Sachin's research interests include climate and hydrology and climate adaptation, and he happens to be in Calgary today. Now, just before I ask you as to why you're in Calgary today, I was just actually curious, what's the difference between climate change and climate variability? Are they, like, to me, they sound like synonyms, but clearly they're not. Mm, good question, Derek. It's all part of the same system, the climate. The change is more of a trend or a tendency over a long period of time, whereas the variability is the change in the climate from year to year or decade to decade. You can think of the variability as surrounding the trend. Oh. And of course, as a scientist, we think in terms of graphics. So if you can imagine a line that's trending up or down, and then from year to year, there's variability above and below that line. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really curious about that. So yeah, what brings you to Alberta? Oh, I get here often. Oh, I was okay. <laughs> born and raised here. Um, all my family's still here, but for professional reasons, Park, our research center, actually does most of our work in Alberta, as opposed to Saskatchewan, huh. for various reasons. Okay. And so I'm often in, in Alberta meeting with government and industry and municipalities uh, and uh, giving them information about climate change because they ask and they pay for it. Okay, okay. And you were out in Jasper this past weekend, right? No, I was in Jasper a month ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. This past week, I was in Canmore and Canonascus. Okay. Um, and today, Calgary. Nice. All right. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, you All the pretty parts. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, okay, so you mentioned you, you grew up in Alberta. Whereabouts? In Edmonton. Edmonton, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did you have a connection at all to farming growing up? Yeah, I sure did. My mom grew up on the farm. Okay. And... Her parents and her brothers and sisters mostly farmed oh. east of Edmonton. So as a kid, the day, the day after school was out in June, we got put on the bus and shipped off to the farm for most of the summer. And so as a young kid, my memory of growing up was mostly on the farm and not so much in the city. Interesting. Until I got a bit older. And of course, you wanted to hang out in the city with your friends as a teenager. But yeah, I had that I had that connection to the farm. Right. I'm just curious, what kind of farm were they running out there? It was a mixed farm. Well, okay. as long as my grandparents lived there, it was a mixed farm. But then once they passed on and my, my uncle took it over, he was more of a, a Hereford uh, beef, more of a beef farm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And pasture, of course. 
Forage. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And there, you said they're still out there, or they sold it off? No, it's still it's yeah. still in the family. Although now my uncle has passed on, so his widow uh, lives there as well as um, my cousin and her husband run the farm. Okay. Yeah. And I have you know cousins and aunts and uncles on the farm in Central Alberta. Okay. Well, that's great. You got some people to visit when you come out here. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about parks. So, uh, you know, I gave people just like a one-liner as to what you guys are doing. Uh, just curious, you could tell us a little bit more. Are you guys just focused on water management or is the scope much larger than that? I'll let you take it from here. Um, yeah, you captured it pretty well on that one-liner. Um, but I took it from your website. I'm not going to lie. There, there we go. We have a new website. We give a lot of thought as to <laughs> Looks very the good, content actually. of our new website. I'd invite people to visit it, park.ca. Um, no, our focus, well, our focus is climate change. But on the prairies, you can translate climate change into water. I mean, the prairies is the only region of Canada where water is a limiting factor environmentally, economically. Um, it's the only major region of Canada that's defined by a lack of water. So the prairie ecozone is lacking trees because there's not enough water to support trees. Mm. And because water is so critical and so variable in our part of the world, when you study climate change, you can't avoid studying water. One of the most challenging impacts of climate change is the shift in our water supply between seasons and between years. And a larger range of water from too dry in some years to too wet in others, mm. which has always been characteristic of the prairies, but even more so in a changing climate. Mm. Okay. And uh, just because you guys do really focus on adaptation, and I don't know how you answer this question exactly, but w what does it mean to adapt? It just, I, I was just thinking that, you know, when the set, our European settlers came out here, they adapted in a way by, you know, ripping out native prairie, cutting down trees and planting all these like European grasses, which... I suppose that it's adaptation, but now in retrospect, we kind of look back on that like, eh, that probably wasn't the greatest idea. Like, I'm sure there's good adaptation and bad ad mm, adaptation. For sure. Yeah, just, I guess I'll put the question to you again. Like, yeah. what, what does it mean to adapt? Mm -hmm. Well, you gave a, a fantastic example. In fact, the, the, the settlement of the, and colonization, unfortunately, mm. of the, for some people, for the indigenous people, um, the colonization and settlement of the Canadian Prairies is one of the best examples in the world of adaptation of an agricultural system that was brought from Europe mm. and from the eastern U.S. and adapted to a hostile and variable climate. After all, the Canadian prairies has just about the most variable climate on Earth. We share that distinction with Siberia and Mongolia. And it's remarkable that we have a successful commercial agricultural economy in such a hostile climate. Right. We have a short growing season. We have a long winter, uh, at least we did, <laughs> not so much anymore, <laughs> but it was only through adaptation. And if you look at the landscape of the Canadian prairies, you can see adaptation. You can see strip cropping. You can see the, the grid road network. You can see irrigation circles. You can see canals, dams, diversions, reservoirs. Mm -hmm. This is all an expression of adaptation okay. that's enabled us to thrive in a harsh, harsh climate. Mm, mm, okay. <laughs> hey, I guess I suppose it's just in the eye of the beholder if it's negative or positive. Uh, sure, like anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Climate change is 
good for some people. That is a fair point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, leading into my next question, mm-hmm. I would just find, so I, I guess I've been involved in climate work for about a decade now, either as like okay. an organizer or a journalist or doing what I'm doing right now. And one thing I know personally, I rarely actually talk about is adaptation. That it has always been very, very focused on, you know, cutting greenhouse gas emissions. So I find a lot of focus is on mitigation. And I don't know if you found, because you've been doing this much longer than I have. Do you find that like, adaptation or climate adaptation, I should say, doesn't really get the attention it deserves when we're having these big climate strategy or policy discussions? I think up to now it hasn't, but I think there's a definite shift towards a focus or more emphasis on adaptation because realize people realize the climate has changed. We don't talk about climate change as something in the future. We see it around us. It's happening. Mm. And we realize we can't stop it now. So to a large extent, we have no choice but to adapt to the climate change that has occurred and the further adaptation that we can't prevent because we've altered the chemistry of the atmosphere. So you're right. um, The focus has largely been on mitigation up to this point. For um, One reason is mitigation is easy to measure and you can... Policy to limit greenhouse gases can have almost an immediate effect, mm. whereas the benefits of adaptation are realized in the longer term. Mm. And it's more of a nebulous uh, concept, adaptation, especially in terms of what people do. You know, you can tell people you shouldn't drive as much, you should ride your bike, you should walk, you should recycle, um, you should use less water. This is all great. And most of those changes to our lifestyle will result in a lower carbon footprint. Mm. Individuals have difficulty wrapping their head around adaptation. There's only so much we can do to prevent the adverse impacts of climate change, except by working collectively. We work as communities, we work as governments, we work with professional organizations. So really adaptation is achieved by working together as opposed to individually hmm. oh, i like the sound of that it was uh the, that panel was on last night when they asked me for like final thoughts like the one i threw out there was like it, it doesn't really matter what the future holds we we might not do what we need to do to stop climate change in the next 11 years from you know turning into climate chaos if you want to call it that or or we might nail it we might actually get those emission reductions like at, at the end of the day what's going to get us through all this is is community and if we tear apart our communities in order to stop climate change, I just feel like we're going to start or create a whole slew of problems in the process, too. So yeah, I think it's super important to be mindful of that, especially when you have these really difficult conversations. And yeah, you know, talking about the stuff in Alberta is not the easiest thing to talk about. You know? <laughs> it is actually it's, it's somewhat easier to talk about adaptation because you're not telling people they have to use less fossil fuels. You're saying that, OK, the climate is changing. You want to prevent um, adverse consequences to yourself, your family, your community by doing certain things so that as the climate changes, you will thrive and you won't suffer, Hmm. which is kind of an appealing argument. I agree, yeah. (laughs) I also wonder, too, with that, one of the reasons why we don't like talk, or maybe governments don't like talking adaptation too much is... 
it kind of implies failure too. It's like, oh yeah, we, yeah, because we knew about this for a while. We didn't do it, so now we have to move on to this. So the, because right now it, we have this heroic crusade to stop climate change, and it is heroic and it's important to do it. But that's a better narrative than saying, well, we really dropped the ball on this one. And now we have to go to Plan B. You're right, mm. and and people because we focus on adaptation because you can't do everything. Um, people say, well, do you, have you have you given up and you're assuming that there's going to be a no i mean the more you prevent climate change the less you have to adapt Mm -hmm. and if we stay on the present course that we call business as usual if uh if the trajectory remains as it is right now there's going to be so much climate change we can't adapt Mm -hmm. we've exceeded our ability to adapt by changing the climate too much Mm. so you you have you have to do both and and um the more you mitigate climate change the more manageable and feasible is the adaptation okay yeah so they do work hand in hand That's yeah point. i like that let's talk about the the wet stuff uh, mm. i'm just curious if just Give us a bit of an idea. What are the sources of water or moisture in Alberta? You could take a prairie lens if you want to with this question. Sure. And and you kind of have to because one, I mentioned we do a lot of our work in Alberta. One of the reasons is because Alberta produces the water that everybody else is used on the prairies. I mean, the water runs downhill, mm. right? And the okay. highest elevations yeah. are the Rockies. And as you go to Manitoba, it gets lower and lower. So... Nearly everybody in Alberta gets their water from the Rocky Mountains. Most of the people in Saskatchewan get their water from Alberta. Wow. And some of the people in Manitoba also get the same water supply. So if you're concerned about how climate change is impacting the water supply for Saskatchewan, you have to come to Alberta because that's where it comes from. Hmm. I mean, I live in a city, Regina, that was built where there's no water. I can't think of another city anywhere in the world, maybe Las Vegas. Where they built a city where there's no water. Yeah, right. We have to get it by canal from the South Saskatchewan River, which starts right here mm-hmm. with the bow and the the old man. So yeah, the I mean <clears throat> people people that are growing dryland farming. Okay, so if you're growing crops and you don't irrigate, then your water's coming from the sky mm. precipitation. But if you irrigate or if you live in a city, then you're getting your water from a river, and the most of the rivers in this part of the world flow out of the Rocky Mountains okay. and are fed by glaciers and snow primarily. And that that water is delivered from the ocean. So it's delivered from the ocean to the mountains. It gets stored in the mountains, mostly as snow and ice, and then as it melts, the water is shed and delivered to the people of the prairies. Okay. And the, actually, this uh, I wanted to ask about the BC forest fires. Does that it, it impact that process of the ocean water or the moisture coming off the ocean then being carried over to the Rockies is, or it doesn't really matter? I think that um, these weather systems that deliver the water from the ocean to the prairies are so massive. Mm. Uh, I can't imagine. I mean, I'm not an expert on that, but I can't imagine the forest fires having much of an impact, although they do create their own weather. So during uh-huh. a forest fire, during a, a, a intense forest fire, there can be local weather. Um, but in the longer term, what drives 
the delivery of water from the Pacific Ocean to the prairies is the circulation of the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. Because the Pacific Ocean is huge. It's 16 times larger than Canada. And three quarters of the earth is ocean. Um, Occasionally in summer, we'll get moist air that comes from the Gulf of Mexico. And when it does, it tends to produce a lot of rain, like the flood in Calgary in 2013. Okay, Mm -hmm. so once in a while, we get these wet air masses from the south, but most of the time, our weather comes from the west, and the water is being carried from the Pacific Ocean to the Canadian prairies. So we have that, mm. that glacier-fed water, but then the thing that really surprised me when I moved out to the prairies was just how dependent we are out here on that snow melt. So not just what's hitting the glaciers, but what literally is on the land. Like I've heard oh, some yeah. statistics that like 50% of our per- precipitation in a year comes from snow. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I don't know if you want to speak to that at all, but how important that snow melt is to our water system or the water sources here. Yeah, it's huge. Um, not just because it's almost half of our annual precipitation, but it's, it's, it's natural storage. I mean, the, the snow builds up over the winter and then is available in the spring as it mm-hmm. melts, as opposed to rain. I mean, rain falls and it tends to run off and mm-hmm. like it's stored in the soil. But the nice thing about snow is you can measure it. You can see it. You know how much water is going to be available that year in the, in the form of the snowpack. And one of the, one of the huge impacts of a warming climate is our winters are getting quite a bit warmer. Mm. And eventually we expect that a lot of our water will be delivered as rain in the winter as opposed to snow, mm. which is a much different way of deriving our water supply. Um, and we, we use the expression, we're losing the advantage of a cold winter. <laughs> there's there's some major advantages to cold weather mm. and one is snow mm. storage of of uh, water is snow not only is it natural storage but the stuff melts during the spring when temperatures usually are relatively low especially early spring right mm. and so the the snow melt water doesn't evaporate on those cool days it it sinks in seeps into the soil as compared to a rainstorm in the midsummer mm. where a lot of that rain just evaporates i mean you've probably seen like a thunderstorm in calgary or elsewhere in alberta a thunderstorm you get this big downpour of rain and all of a sudden a couple hours later it's, it's dry again because that water pretty much has just disappeared mm. so even though we do get rainstorms in summer they're not nearly as effective as snow melt in recharging the annual water supply. Mm. And farming depends to a large extent on the snow melt replacing the soil moisture in the soil and it's available for seeding in the spring. Okay. So is the issue, because I've always had a little bit of trouble understanding like why would rain in the winter be such a big deal? Why is, you know, snowflakes, why are those preferable? Is it just because if you have rain, like you're saying, the runoff goes a bit quicker, and then all of a sudden the water's like concentrated in more smaller pockets, as opposed to with like snow belt. Then it's almost like decentralized energy in a way. Well, I mean, the the, the rain would run into the river mm-hmm. and then exit the watershed. So okay. it just it it tends to get output from the watershed more quickly. It doesn't stick around. Also, it's hazardous. I mean, you don't rain in winter. It's not it's not very pleasant. No, right? Even the temperatures <laughs> hovering around zero. So we can expect. I mean. 
it, we get freezing rain now. We didn't used to. Oh, Back okay. in the day when I was a kid, it was unheard of. There was no freezing rain on the prairies, but, really. but it's becoming a bit of a, more like Southern Ontario, and it's becoming a bit of a hazard. But also, yeah, the, the rainwater, I, you know, if it freezes, it sticks around, but in general, it tends to get to the river and out of the watershed more quickly mm. than does uh, snow. Would it actually, I could be playing devil's advocate a little bit here, but does that mean like whoever's downstream, like you're saying, like Saskatchewan's super dependent on our water here and even goes to Manitoba. Does that mean they'd actually have more water than they had before? Well, yeah. Which well, I suppose yeah. that comes with flooding problems, doesn't it? Yeah. More water in winter. Okay. But yeah. when do you need water? Yeah. It'd be better you don't need the summer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd rather have the water in summer. Right. And that's the huge dilemma. Actually, the climate models are suggesting we're going to have more water in the future than we do now. Which huh. sounds good, right? Yeah. But that more water is in winter when we don't need it. Okay. We're not growing things in winter. Right. Right? And so we'd prefer to have the water in summer. But in fact, we're going to have more water in winter and less water in summer when we actually need it. Okay. That's what I meant earlier about one of the biggest impacts of climate change is the shifting of our water supply from summer to winter. Mm. That seems kind of unnatural, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's different. Jeez, okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that article I was reading uh, where, where you were quoted, I think it was the last time you were in Alberta, you talked to Calgary Council. And uh, I, th I think one thing that came out of the article that the prairies were actually warming up quicker than other parts of Canada, Put, putting the Arctic aside for a moment. Uh, I don't fully understand why the prairies would warm up quicker than BC or Ontario or Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. Well, in general, the higher... The latitude, the more quickly the climate is warming. Okay. So the, the fastest warming on Earth is the Arctic, mm. which is like four times faster than the global average. But the interior of Canada also is warming faster. And that's because water has a buffering effect on temperatures, mm -hmm. which is why people flock to Vancouver and to Victoria. You don't get the temperature extremes, right? You don't get the horrible cold in winter. You don't get the hot in summer. Okay. Because water stores a lot of heat. Water makes the hot days cooler and the cold days warmer. Yeah. Well, we don't have a lot of water on the prairies lying around. And so we get these huge temperature extremes from you know, minus 35 in winter to plus 35 in summer. And when there's a drought, it's even worse. There's even less water. So some of the highest temperatures ever recorded on the prairies were in the 1930s when virtually all the water disappeared and we didn't have that buffering effect okay. of water. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we get for like climate impacts on our water supply, it's, you know, wetter winters, like bad time to be receiving moisture. Also on top of that, I guess, with it being drier summer, we're going to lose a bit of moisture that way. Is there any other ways that... Climate change may impact our water supply here in Alberta and the prairies. Yeah, well, uh, besides shifting the water from summer to winter and requiring adaptation, uh. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do to store that extra water, right? Um, but in terms of what else is happening to our water supply, we are putting the hydrological cycle on steroids, is the way we okay. like to say it. Okay. <laughs> So dry years and wet years are perfectly natural. Uh -huh. Droughts and floods are perfectly natural, but they're occurring in a warmer, wetter climate. So they're being amplified. 
the wet is getting wetter, the dry is getting drier. Okay. And when we look at the future climate of the prairies, the range between the most wet and the most dry is getting larger and larger and larger. Mm-hmm. And even though I said we're going to have more water on the prairies, the droughts are just going to be as just as dry and devastating as they were in the past, okay. even though on average, the total amount of water could be greater. Yeah. So it's, yeah, that's probably actually, that's probably the most challenging consequence of global climate change for our part of the world is amplifying those extremes. Mm. And we had an example this year. I mean, I don't like to use the weather of one year mm. as climate change. We can't say that. Climate change is a tendency over many years. Mm-hmm. But the kind of weather we expect in the future is like this spring, there was a horrible drought. Parts of the prairies, they yeah. barely got a crop in. And then it got horribly wet, which is like the worst case scenario. You want the, you want the water in the spring and the dry in the fall so you can harvest. Mm. This year, they got the opposite. They got the dry in the spring and the wet in the fall. Mm. And it's a huge problem for a lot of crop producers on the prairies. I could believe it. I just cannot believe this year. Just like canola, it just seemed like it was never going to change from green. It just looked like it was going to stay like that till the snow fell, which I guess in some spots maybe it did, but it, it was yeah. really weird. Huh? Well, I'm, t- I'm, I'm talking to producers are saying that, that the seed that didn't germinate in the spring because it was too dry is not now germinating. Get so it. they're getting the second growth of canola coming up. They're trying to harvest their canola, and there's a second crop coming up through it. You know, baby cow is a really popular thing, so maybe baby canola could be a thing one day. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. What are those lessons in our past that we can use to inform our water management strategies for now and for the future? Mm, Oh boy, this is my favorite topic. All right, all right, let's get into it. (laughs) My favorite topic. Um, you know, our, our research center studies the climate of the future, but personally, my academic background is the study of the climate of the past. Mm. And the, the big advantage of having a knowledge of the climate of the last millennium is you know something about the natural variability of our climate. We have fantastic network of weather stations on the prairies. These weather stations were built starting in 1880s. And so we have like 140 years of daily weather data for a few locations, which is great. But humans started burning coal and oil and gas in the 1850s. Mm. So unfortunately, I like to say that our weather records are contaminated. In other words, what we've been measuring since the 1880s is mostly natural variability, but also climate change. If you want to know how the climate of the prairies varies in the absence of climate change or in the absence of Europeans and just indigenous people, then you need to collect weather data prior to 1850. Mm. And so I've been doing that with my students now for 35 years. Okay. Every summer for 35 years, I drag research assistants, um, university students, out into the forest, under the Rocky Mountains, the forest of the northern prairies, the boreal forest, but also the island forests, like in the Cypress Hills mm. and these, and in the valleys of uh, of Alberta, where you get trees that extend from the foothills and down the valleys of the red deer and the old man and the bow because they're sheltered. So mm. we we've been collecting old wood 
for 35 years. So now we have more than 7,000 pieces of old wood in our lab. Wow. And trees are a crop. I mean, trees are a plant. Mm -hmm. They need water. And so they tell us how much water was in the soil every year over the last thousand years. And that's how we get a handle on these natural cycles from wet to dry, from year to year and decade to decade and century to century. Mm -hmm. And we know something about the natural variability that is underlying the future climate of the prairies. So the, the old wood that you guys are finding, you're like, I don't know, is it like how people look for dinosaur bones? Are you literally like digging these things up? Well, I mean, they're, they're living trees. But not, well, in some cases, actually, there are, there are old dead trees that we have to pry out of the ground huh, cool. and take a chainsaw to them. Okay. We don't kill any trees. We only put the, the chainsaw to the dead trees. Okay. The living trees, we take a small core about the size of a pencil okay. from the bark to the center. Okay. And there are trees that are almost a thousand years old yeah, okay. growing right. yeah. around Calgary. There's trees in Calgary that are 500 years old. Me. And we know that because we asked the city parks department, do you mind if we take a few samples? And we found Douglas fir trees in Edgeworthy Park and in Bones Park that are 500 years old. Wow. And up by Cochrane, there's trees that are 700 years old that are living. Okay. Then there's trees that are, were that old and died. Okay. Um, they've been lying around for decades. And we can determine the age of the deadwood because we correlate the growth of the living trees and the deadwood and transfer the, the years from the living to the deadwood. I don't do it. I hire students to do it because it's quite a tedious <laughs> process and takes a lot of patience. I don't have the patience to do that, but I, I have some good lab assistants who do that. So that's how we can get back. Combining dead and living wood, we can go back a thousand years. Okay. And then yeah. how can like so when you're studying that hydrology, is there something like in the tree rings that tells you like, oh, that was a really wet year and oh, that was a dry year? Like how, how could you tell from looking at it? Are they bigger rings then? Or they're they... bigger if it's wet. Okay. They're... Okay, more growth. Yeah. That makes more sense. growth. Yeah. Well, they're bigger. Yeah. But also, um, I think everybody knows the story of tree rings, but if you look at tree rings, there's two parts to it. There's a, a light part mm-hmm. and a dark part. The light oh. part grows early in the year when there's usually good soil moisture and the tree's growing quickly. And then, you know, it starts to dry out in summer and the days get shorter and the, the tree kind of slows down and it produces darker, denser wood. And then one day it just stops growing until the next year. So, I mean, this is a fantastic place to do this kind of work. You can only do this kind of work where there's a seasonal climate where the trees stop growing. You can't do this in the tropics because the trees never stop growing. Right. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Think about that. Yeah. So we do this work in, in the northern hemisphere, on the, on the prairies. We do it in the southern hemisphere in Chile and Argentina with, uh, well, we don't do it. We collaborate with, with uh, scientists down there in the other part of the world where they get strong seasonality. <laughs> so, yeah. So the amount of growth, but also there's properties of the wood. If you look at the wood microscopically, you can see that the size of the cells and the thickness of the cell walls and the density of the wood and even the composition of the wood, uh, the um, hydrogen and the oxygen and the carbon that make up the wood varies according to how much water was available. So we have different, we call these proxies. It's not, you're not actually measuring the climate. It's a proxy of the climate. Okay. Okay. But we got a pretty good idea from the wood, how much water was available to the tree, but also to the soil. Mm. into the rivers into the lakes each year for a thousand years okay so 
Uh, I guess that makes my question more complicated, but like, is there, yeah, anything from that, we could have like extrapolate and flip it around to our, our future, trying to plan what, to deal with these conditions we were just talking about for the last 20 minutes. If well, we yeah, I mean, we, we've been adapting to these natural cycles and these natural cycles aren't going away. Mm. You could say we're still struggling with, we're still struggling with the natural climate variability and then throw on top of that. Yeah, a warming climate. So we have to know both how what nature throws at us. We have to know both the natural cycles and the impact of warming climate, mm. and how a warming climate is is changing or shifting the natural cycles to make them worse, um, higher, severe or intense and maybe more often. And so these things, like I said, these things occur, climate change isn't causing flooding and drought. It occurs mm. in the absence of people, but it's changing the characteristics and the severity and the impacts of the flooding and drought. Okay. okay. And I'm curious, like, I know you're not working in the agricultural department of the university, but you do have that, from what I read, when you've spoken or even some of the articles you've written yourself, like you do have a, a decent understanding. I'm just curious, are there any like practices that you've seen or that you think might help agricultural producers to help to adapt or I just manage the water on their land given current conditions and the conditions that could be in the future? Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you can't study weather and climate on the prairies without working with the ag sector. And, yeah, and uh, you can't study climate change on the prairies without working with the ag sector, um, which I've done a lot of. You know, I just imagine I'm talking to my aunts and uncles, cousins. <laughs> in fact, I've gone to a few meetings in central Alberta where they show up, so I don't have to pretend they're actually there in the audience. <laughs> and I really enjoy working with the ag sector. Um, and, you know, it's really... It's an asset that I have a bit of a background, a family background in agriculture, and mm. that I've spent my whole life here, except going off to school. That that's an advantage, but also the tree ring, the 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 the, uh, the climate of the last thousand years that really appeals to farmers because trees are a crop, and also this is not some model that produced this. Mm. These fluctuations actually happened. You know, you can look at the wood, you can you can see the cycles and the fluctuation from year to year. And so that record of natural variability really resonates with, with the farm community. Mm. And when you start to use that as a, as a gateway, as, as to talk about climate change, and then we bring in huh. the models, which is a less appealing subject for a lot of people. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're computer models. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of a virtual hypothetical world, right? It's not real. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we, we work a lot. We have been various types of projects uh, working with and supported by the ag sector. Mm. Now, we never tell farmers what to do. I would never tell a farmer <laughs> how to manage their operation, right? But we give them a lot of information. We give them a lot of data. Um, we make recommendations. and. It, it works both ways. We get a lot of insight about the weather and the climate from the farm community because they're living it. Uh -huh. They're out there in the weather. Uh -huh. We're sitting in our lab 
we're sitting in a studio, right? Mm. We're sitting uh, behind a computer. Um, I mean, I, I get outside in summer and, and collect wood, and a lot of the wood we collect is on ranches, okay, and, you know, and farms. Um, but uh, so, uh, but we never tell farmers what to do, but we give the information and we engage in a discussion of how maybe they might want to change farming practices. Um, crops to take advantage of a warmer climate, mm. but also to avoid the impacts of flooding and drought and climate variability. I said earlier that um, we're losing the advantage of a cold winter. I mentioned snow, but another unfortunate impact of climate change in our warming winter is a lot more pests, diseases, disease vectors, invasive species are surviving our warming winter. And so these things are beginning to show up in the crops and pasture and the forest. And this is going to be a huge um, challenge for the ag sector is how to deal with these nasty things that in the past didn't survive our cold winter. Mm. We didn't have, I mean, and you know, your parents or grandparents or great grandmas will tell you, you know, back in the day, it was much colder. Well, it was. Just look at, just go to the Environment Canada website, download some data. It just was. And I, mm. and I can talk from experience because going to high school in Edmonton in 1969, we had 21 consecutive days below minus 35 <laughs> in January. And the Edmonton Journal, Yardley Jones, the cartoonist, do this cartoon. And every school kid in Edmonton got a certificate. And I still have mine. Oh, yeah? That, that we, yeah, that we survived this this winter. So, you know, we still get minus 35, mm -hmm. but you don't get a whole winter of minus 35. Oh. That's the difference. Mm. And it takes so many consecutive days of minus 30 or minus 35 uh, to prevent a lot of pests and diseases mm. from surviving. But now they're beginning to survive. I say that's the one that scares me the most because I feel like with moisture, there are some like tried practices that agriculture producers can know of or just like tweaks it, just like boosting soil carbon, the great way mm -hmm. to like get moisture penetration in the soil or yeah. just that practices like agroforestry, just to trap that blowing snow on your land, stuff like that. So I feel like th those ones, they're kind of straightforward in my head, but dealing yeah with those pathogens with those pests i have no idea like we're about in about a month we're doing a workshop on uh how to deal with the uh, mountain pine beetle and like the popular this is going to be our most popular workshop we're getting so many response because like or so much response because there's so many people that are dealing with this and they don't really know what to do about it mm -hmm. so yeah not, it's, it's kind of you for the answer but i think no, that, that's one that scares me the most I have for to say. sure yeah for sure and i agree entirely mm. and the I'm glad I'm, I'm a university professor and a farmer when it comes to <laughs> things like that. But uh, yeah, and and you know the other types of of adaptations that we discuss with the farm community is okay. Some years going to have too much water, so you're going to have to drain, but you want to drain such that you can retain the water when you need it. And so, mm. moisture management, carbon management, um, is going to be huge. And if there's going to be extra water, you want to find ways of storing it so it's available later in the growing season. And uh -huh. so you want to manage the soil so it retains that water as long as possible through a warmer 
drier summer. Mm-hmm. And um, and we don't have to tell them how. I mean, this they they know the kind of farming practices that contribute to soil health and soil carbon and retain retain moisture. Mm, yeah, agreed. and we just present the data to demonstrate that's a good idea. Yeah, I say this quite often that most producers are actually like closet scientists. Like they they can really get into the nitty gritty of that data. I think, but like your entry point, like you're saying, like you start with that tree. Yeah, but then you you can scale it up from there, and the knowledge that's in the community just blows my mind sometimes. Oh, for sure, it's a science based industry, right? A lot of farmers have told me that. You know, it's not that I don't believe the science you're giving us. It's just that we're being told we can't burn fossil fuels. Mm. How do you produce food without burning fossil fuels? You got to. Yeah. You got to use yeah. a lot of water and energy to produce food. So as long as everybody else wants to eat, we have to permit the ag sector to, to use fossil fuels and water. Mm. No, I definitely agree. And I think right. the nice thing about the egg sector too, it's a, it's one of the few sectors that has a way to sequester a lot of its own emissions where like electricity cannot sequester the emissions producing from electricity, but through like soil carbon sequestration and, you know, trees and a few other methods that there, there are ways that agriculture, it can't offset all its emissions, but it can definitely like take a good bite out of them too. So I think, I think it gives agriculture a bit of an advantage too, in that sense. That's, that's a really good point. You know, we talk about adaptation and we do research and we have meetings, but we actually don't do the adapting. Mm. It's people that manage and own the land and the water and the soil. It's engineers and farmers and foresters that actually do the adaptation um, on our behalf. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge opportunity in the ag sector because they want to manage the land. But also, it's on an annual cycle. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not like some engineer that builds a, a structure that is going gonna, is gonna to last 50 or 60 or 80 years. So they have to look 80 years in the future and say, I'm going to build this, this generating station or this bridge that has to survive the climate 80 years from now. Farming, for the most part, is on an annual cycle. Mm. So they have the ability to adjust their practices year after year as the climate changes. Mm. No, that's true. I, was just that. <laughs> I recorded uh, just yesterday, actually, with a couple of researchers from U of A, and they were saying one of the struggles that they had in their um, study, which is looking at grazing, is just like no two ranches are like they each have their own uh, unique management practices so it's not like comparing can be quite difficult sometimes there's so many variables i felt quite bad for them too it's like you have a very complex task in front of you but oh I, yeah it could add to the fun too having that variability on top of it yeah i find the egg community is very diverse mm. you know people who live in the city have a stereotype of a farmer mm. and when i go out and work with the egg community there's all kinds of different types of farmers right mm. they huge industrial um, farm operations where these people are like CEOs and they have their private jets and they're on their cell phone the whole time. And then you get back to the landers and you get mixed farming and you uh, get, boy, you get all kinds of different people that are engaged in farming and have their own approach to it. Yeah, I think I think the farm community is more diverse than suburban Calgary. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I've recently discovered, thanks to you, that there was one time we had this thing called the Prairie Farm Rehabilitation Administration. Uh, had it for about 80 years. We lost it about, I guess, five, 10 years ago. I, my question to you, is it something that we need? 
to have today. Was it a loss? Did it, you know, it's, I understood they created during the Great Depression, during one of the worst droughts we've had. Mm-hmm. Is Did it run its course? Other departments can take over. And just maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the administration. You bet. Certainly. And uh, what I can't believe is that how many people didn't know it actually existed because it was very prominent. It's, it was a very well-liked and prominent government agency. It's hard to believe that there would be, especially for the ag sector, there would be a federal government agency that they respected. But that was the case. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> that was the case with, with, with PFRA. PFRA, yeah, was, was created in 1937 to rehabilitate the prairie ag lands after the devastating drought of the 1930s. And it was an adaptation. It's, a, it's one of the best examples in the world of an institutional adaptation, a policy adaptation to climate change or to climate. Mm. I'm not saying the 30s were climate change, but it was climate. Mm. One of the best examples anywhere of a policy response to a climate event was creating PFRA. And it did. It, rehab- it introduced all kinds of farming practices and it helped farmers Go shelter belts, make dugouts, strip cropping, um, and it rehabilitated the prairie landscape. But once it did that, it sort of morphed into a different kind of organization, which was more rural development, huh. rural community development, and water management. They had a lot of skills at PO4A in terms of managing water, managing soil. And so it thrived until. 2011, 2013, mm. when it was just eliminated by the Harper government. Okay. And what's ironic is I hear people in Ottawa saying, you know, we, we really need a government agency that works with farmers to manage the, the soil and the water. <laughs> we need this government agency that's it's a bridge between the, the scientists and the farm. Wait a minute. We had that for 70 years. You got rid of it. Wow. Yeah. Now they're talking about about creating something like it. Oh, my God. Yeah. And in the meantime, we lost all that capacity because they, they, so many scientists and engineers and policy people worked for PFRA, Mm. retired or got laid off or got absorbed by the public service. Okay. Yeah. So, what, like, is is something like uh, agriculture and agri food Canada not suited to, like, carry on that work or? I guess they're both fed, or one's a federal branch well, and one's a department. I guess, sorry, PFRA was a branch of Ag Canada. Right. Okay. Yeah. But it was a branch devoted to, like I said, extension work and working with farmers. Okay. And um, it just, I mean, this is, I'm not an economist. I'm not a social scientist, but my, my perception is that um, beginning with the Harper government, even today, uh, they look at agriculture as a big business and that the farmers can do it themselves, right? Mm. They don't need government to help them. Um, that, you know, for examples of getting rid of the wheat board and, and getting rid of PFRA and saying, okay, you know, farming is a lucrative business. So you don't really need government to help. Well, that's not true mm. when we get flooding and drought and um, when we get a crop disaster and... Uh, yeah, it's just, it's kind of unfortunate that there's a bit of a void in the absence of PFRA. Uh, to some extent, there have been organizations that have uh, 
tried to fill the gap like these watershed stewardship groups. Right, yeah. Every watershed on the prairies pretty much, especially in Alberta, has a stewardship group that, mm. that does source water protection. And, and, and it, it, those, those are volunteer organizations while they have a few paid staff, but mostly their board consists of producers from the watershed. Because mm. you got you know, you got to take a, a regional collective um, approach to managing the watershed. You can't do it on a farm by farm basis because the the water passes from farm to farm to farm and with it so does the soil and the nutrients and, and so on and the climate isn't confined to one farm the weather and climate affects a bunch of farms at the same time right so that's the kind of uh perspective that pfra had and that's the kind of perspective that these watershed stewardship groups have more of a regional view of things but uh like capacity-wise, would you say like all those groups together are able to fill that void? I think no, they're nonprofits, just like they don't our organization. Yeah, yeah, they don't have the capacity. They don't have the technical capacity to pay for a head. Okay, um, they could. I mean, governments could decide. Well, we're we're really going to really financially support these. Um, they're called WPACs or watershed stewardship groups. You know, we're going to provide them with the resources so they could fill that void. But that has that hasn't happened. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, we're feeling the same thing right now. That unfortunately, it's a thing in the nonprofit sector. It's just really hard to get those grants to do the work you want to do. Mm. Um, it's kind of funny you said that you're not a social scientist because I feel like my next question is very social science based. Go uh, for it. The, Let me have it. <laughs> the article you wrote for uh, policy options in 2017, which I really like. My my favorite sentence uh, is this one right here. The adaptive capacity of rural agriculture communities depends on as much on social and natural capital as it does on financial resources and technology. I read that I was thinking as I, as a person, I've only been working in egg for like five years. It, it doesn't actually feel that way at the moment because right now it feels like the bigger your farm is, the bigger the loans, the bigger your equipment and your bigger chances for success it feels like natural capital and social capital is such a teeny tiny part of that whole equation so mm -hmm. i'm sort of curious what did you mean by that sentence mm -hmm. well first of all when i was approached by the magazine policy options i said sorry i'm not a policy person i'm not a okay you know, i'm a nat oh that's okay we want we want the perspective of a natural scientist and i was able to offer that perspective because i've worked closely with social scientists over the last 10 to 15 years Climate change is very much an interdisciplinary problem. You know, you can't, you can't stick to the narrow focus of one discipline like biology or engineering or, or psychology. You can't stick to that narrow focus and expect that the problem of climate change is going to yield to your work. Mm -hmm. you got to work with a whole bunch of people in different disciplines, which is what we do at Park. Mm. And which universities tend to be lousy at because universities are, are structured. They got this archaic structure, which is departments or disciplines. So it's only because I work at Park that I can work with and I can support sociologists, psychologists, economists, biologists, geologists, engineers, uh, geographers like myself. And we work together and I've learned a whole heck of a lot from the social scientists. I consider myself a kind of closet or social social scientist. And I'm sure if any of my colleagues hear this, they'll chuckle. Uh, <laughs> so that comment that I made is part of the 
learning that I benefited from by working with these people. We had a major five-year project studying rural ag communities in the Canadian prairies, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, uh, for five years. And I was asked to lead the project. So I was the person who had to understand what everybody else is doing and sort of put the pieces together. Mm. And this was one of our major conclusions is that there's the assumption that if you have a lot of money from farming, you're going to be able to withstand the impacts of climate change. Well, that's not what historically and socially our colleagues observe, that when times are tough, people depend on their neighbors. They mm. depend on the local community, right? They're, ice, they're, they're, they're living out in isolation. If there's a fire or a flood or something, they, they call on their neighbors and the neighbors show up and give them a hand. So as the, as the prairies have been depopulated, as the farms are getting bigger and bigger and there's fewer and fewer people in, this, in the rural areas, they're losing that social cohesion. They're losing the viability of their communities, which is adversely affecting their ability to deal uh, with climate change. Stressful. Yeah, it kind of gets back to what we were saying at the beginning. Like, you need that community to take on whatever the future may hold. You bet. And you uh, bet. so, final yeah. question still sure. on the social capital. Um, so, as I think we're both aware of, there's quite a few agriculture producers who are entirely convinced that human caused climate change is a real thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as we just said, that social capital is really, really important. So how do the producers who, who are accepting human cause climate change as a fact, how do they build that social capital with their neighbors when, like you said, these communities are losing their social cohesion already because uh, mm -hmm. the like, yep. rural Alberta is being depopulated very slowly and bringing up something like climate, particularly in this province, it can be really isolating. So yeah, how, uh, how do you build that social capital? <laughs> well, I'm going to pull the, the scientist <laughs> excuse and say that that's social psychology. Mm -hmm. and, and, I'm, and I'm a natural scientist, but I do a lot of reading in social psychology because I encounter that all the time when I'm out in the ag community. And I'm just curious. So I've read all this stuff about the psychology of groups and that one of our strongest natural instincts is to fit in mm -hmm. right we're tribal we want to fit in we don't want to stand out necessarily unless you're a teenager you know but once mm -hmm. you get through your teens you sort of sort of want to be a member of your community and fit in so that's so strong that uh yeah there's there's this and you know i have colleagues who are climate scientists and they find it frustrating that the people don't believe in climate change uh i don't because i know where they're coming from Mm. First of all, we don't experience climate, we experience weather. Mm -hmm. And we're living in a place on Earth where we have extreme weather and variable weather. So it's really hard to see climate change in our part of the world because the temperature is all over the place. We go from wet to dry, flooding to drought. So, you know, unless, you have a, unless you're a scientist and you have a whole lot of data, it's hard to tease out climate change from all that background natural variability. Mm. So. I understand that. But also, and producers tell me this, they accept, they say, well, you know, we're pretty certain you know what you're talking about because you've been studying this for 40 years, day in and day out, right? We'll give you that. Um, so the science is probably correct, but we don't like the solutions that are being offered. 
we don't like being told that we have to pay a carbon tax or use less fossil fuels or use less water that um and i think they're right that they there is a disproportional burden being placed on the ag sector when it comes to solving this problem of climate change and the people in the city have so many options right if you're told in the city you know, you should drive less. Okay, I'll just park my car and ride a bike, t- yeah. take the bus or whatever. A city got the LRT. The people in the in the in the rural areas don't have those alternatives when it comes to finding a different way of getting around. Or yeah, so I'm you know I understand where they're coming from. Yeah, it makes me wonder if like if they're presented with like like good viable alternatives then it might be easy to make the switch so i, I yeah good you gotta you gotta do that you gotta yeah. present everybody with viable and yeah. and uh economical alternatives mm. right and sure for sure rural roots to climate solutions is an alberta-based project empowering agricultural producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions rural roots is proud to be a project of the stetler learning center in east central alberta we run workshops farm field days webinars assist rural communities develop their own community-owned solar projects, and of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Brenda Barrett, Angie O'Connor, Marie Galanka, Evelyn Tanaka, and myself, Derek Leahy. The podcast is funded by the Government of Alberta and Energy Efficiency Alberta. This episode was edited by Kieran Mountain of Mountain Media and recorded at the Media Lab YYC in Calgary on Treaty 7 land in Métis Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.